Housewarming, a podcast about climate policy and solutions in Chicago, Illinois, and beyond. I'm Annie. This episode is sponsored by Bike Home Chicago, a residential real estate group with at properties led by Jordan Rothschild. Bike Home Chicago offers a carbon neutral way of touring real estate by bicycle. Whether you're in the market for a single family home, a condo, a co-op, or an apartment, Jordan can help you navigate the complicated process of buying, selling, or renting a home. Learn more online at bikehomechicago.com. Across the globe, from Great Britain to Argentina to Bangladesh, municipalities are declaring a state of climate emergency and triggering massive environmental mobilization efforts. A nonprofit called the Climate Mobilization is advocating for a World War II level mobilization across the United States in order to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, overhaul our economy, and protect humanity and the natural world from climate catastrophe. Here in Chicago, 47th Ward Alderperson Matt Martin introduced a resolution last month to declare a climate emergency. It was passed by the Environmental Committee on Monday, February 10th, after several hours of debate, and is expected to go before the full council for a vote on Wednesday, February 19th. So what is a climate emergency, and what does it mean for the future of Chicago? In this episode, I'm talking to Alderman Martin about his motivation to declare a climate emergency in Chicago, what this declaration would mean for our city, and what he envisions a massive climate mobilization will look like here. This conversation has been lightly edited for length and clarity. I am Alderman Matt Martin from the 47th Ward, relatively new, about eight months into the job. Last month, you introduced a resolution in the city council um, to have Chicago declare a climate emergency. And I'm curious what motivated you to introduce that. There are several reasons for it. One is obviously we're not just our city, our state, the country, the entire globe is in a climate emergency. And we have an administration, uh, President Donald Trump, who is ignoring um, that fact, to put things lightly. And my thought was, I know that our 47th Ward community that I serve is especially sensitive to this issue about climate change. What can we be doing, especially on a micro scale, while we wait to hopefully have a new person occupy the Oval Office and help chart a more progressive, honest approach to addressing climate change? And so in talking with some of my colleagues on City Council, I thought it would be appropriate to introduce this resolution to reaffirm our values and highlight the fact that climate change is a fact we're in this state of emergency and that this will really set the table for the sort of actions that at a ward level but especially a city level that city government needs to do to take that seriously have you seen um pretty good support across your colleagues for this resolution or is there kind of a a feeling of climate delay among the council what's the outlook i wouldn't say i've I've heard uh, skepticism or received pushback from anybody. Uh, When I introduced this on January 15th at our most recent city council meeting, I chatted with almost all of my colleagues, I think everybody who was in attendance, and to a T, every single person I spoke to said, absolutely, I'm willing to sign on as a co-sponsor. So that was heartening for me, knowing that this is something that is not controversial on Chicago City Council anyways, and that people did agree that it's important to make this declaration um, because it really sets the stage for some more ambitious things that really need to occur quickly. So that's what we're going to talk about next. Um, It's great to hear that people are on board, that there's broad support. That's wonderful. 
Um, what do you think is the first step after this resolution passes for climate mobilization in Chicago? Well, I, I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time. So I don't think about it as just one thing, but we have a panoply of options that I think we need to be uh, moving aggressively on simultaneously. So one is an ordinance that um, I recently was a chief co-sponsor of that Alderman Scott Wagaspak introduced that would ban single-use styrofoam containers at food establishments, limit our use of single-use plastic containers. That's critical. Um, I, along with Alderman Riley, introduced uh, an electric vehicle, an EV-ready ordinance that would uh, heighten the requirements that uh, new buildings, be they residential or commercial, um, would need to abide by in terms of an EV-ready infrastructure. Because if we want to uh, more aggressively nudge people towards purchasing electric vehicles as opposed to vehicles that run on on gasoline, then we need to make sure that we have a charging infrastructure in place. So whether it's a residence or obviously um, a commercial building where maybe you're traveling for meetings for work, that that's critical. Um, we plan on introducing a resolution soon to hold subject matter hearings in terms of our really dismal recycling rate here in the city. It's now below 9%, which is I think the lowest of any large city in the entire US. Um, cities along the West Coast, San Francisco, Portland, for example, they're routinely above 60%. So we know we have a ways to go. Um, I think another thing that we need to do is we're looking to re-up the ComEd franchise agreement. Um, that's an agreement that gives ComEd the exclusive right to be our energy supplier. So we need to make sure that they are removing hurdles in terms of um, getting solar panels connected to the grid. So I, I think those are just uh, the first few that come to mind. Um, I think a final one being from a composting standpoint, we need to do a better job, particularly at the local level, to incentivize people to do that. So there are, are, are myriad things that we can be doing, a number of which have already been identified from folks on city council at other groups, be it uh, the BGA, um, the Illinois Environmental Council. So let's just, we, we know what those next steps are. We just need to take them. And with this climate change declaration, I think that that's table setting because your question is a good one, of course, of you approve this resolution from a city council standpoint, well, what are you going to do? I think we've got at least a half dozen things that we can move on very quickly. That's great. That's great. And you mentioned um, the 6% recycling rate or 9% recycling rate. Um, that's embarrassing. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. who recycles. But also people are kind of waking up recently to the fact that our recycling system is flawed, right? And we were shipping off um, these mass amounts of plastic and so-called recyclable materials to um, other countries that are now rejecting them. And a lot of that is now ending up in landfills in the U.S. They're just being rejected by recycling centers. So I'm curious what mm -hmm. your thoughts are. You know, you, you support this plastic and uh, styrofoam ban at restaurants, which I think is a good first step. But what do you think can be done on a citywide level to help reduce the waste that's being produced? Yeah, I think several things can be done from a recycling standpoint. One is we need to do a better job of informing folks consistently about uh, the higher standards that are going to need to be met in order for materials to be recycled. Um, the BGA has done uh, an investigative series about this, and so we have three recycling 
um, entities. One is the city of Chicago, another is Lakeshore Recycling, and then we've got waste management. Waste management, if memory serves, uh, serves about 50% of the city, or at least that's about 50% of the recycling. So they're the one that we're most focused on, and they're also the one that's the biggest culprit in terms of uh, marking things as not being recycled. And then because they have a separate contract in terms of garbage, um, they get to essentially make money in two ways. One is um, hauling away the recycling, but second is not recycling it, but actually putting it in the landfill. So we need to make sure that folks know like certain containers need to be rinsed out. If it's a pizza box, for example, that has really significant grease stains, other food debris, that that's not going to be recycled. Um, so that people know this is, I think, the the step up that they need to take so that um, whether it's here or in other parts of the world that we actually can do a better job of recycling. I think a second thing is I remember growing up and you heard about those three R's recycling's the third we need to do a better job of reducing and reusing. So I think that there are a lot of situations in this gets to the the point you just mentioned about styrofoam, plastic, the single-use containers and utensils, we just need to be using less of that. Um, we need to be using things that are compostable. We need to compost things more often generally. And I think that there's a, a shared understanding on city council as well as the administration that that's where we need to go. I think part of where we need to what those next steps look like is holding a subject matter hearing benchmark against best practices, particularly in other large cities, and then start to effectuate that. Yeah. So on the note of composting, um, I visited New York last year with my family, and I know they've been doing citywide compost curbside pickup for years at this point. Um, it started as a pilot several years ago, and they've been doing it, I think, across most boroughs of the city um, for a couple of years now. And it's going really well, and it's reduced a lot of waste. And, you know, there's, there's cities worldwide that have been doing that. And locally, Evanston has that as well. So what do you think mm -hmm. first steps are and what kind of timeline would you hope we're, we're looking at for composting citywide? I think with that, it starts with having a series of conversations with the Department of Streets and Sanitation, as well as the mayor's office to see, is this something when we're setting up a pilot, do we want to do this in-house? I think streets and sanitation would be the ideal option there. Or do we want to have a contractor come in um, and get that up and running? Obviously, there's a question about costs with our city's finances being in such a precarious position. Folks obviously want to know about that, but I think we need to ensure we're not losing the forest for the trees because when we have um, climate change goals in terms of for the Paris Accords, um, keeping um, uh, uh, global warming rates at, at below that 1.5 degrees Celsius mark, we need to be acting in a much more ambitious way. And so while I can't, I can't provide a timeline just yet, I think we do know what the next steps are in terms of talking with folks. Um, I think maybe one of the most immediate next steps would be hiring a chief sustainability officer for the city. Um, we have an acting person, but we need an actual full-time person to do that job indefinitely. And second would be reestablishing the Department of the Environment, because right now when you look at um, budgets being a reflection of our values from a government standpoint, our, our budget that is now in place for 2020 doesn't do that with respect to environmental justice. So I've lived in Chicago for 10 years, um, and I'm still 
only now beginning to understand exactly how the city government works. <laughs> it's really complicated. Um, so could you kind of explain this, this Department of the Environment? I know a lot of um, new progressive city council members ran on supporting that office's reestablishment. I know the mayor also mentioned that as one of her goals. Is that something that the mayor would set up or is that something that the council um, is supportive of? So it can, I would say ideally both. Um, it's city council is the one that ultimately approves the budget. So if we said for the 2021 budget, uh, we want to fund the Department of the Environment that is completely within our power to do regardless of what the mayor's preferences are. I know that she's interested in reestablishing that department. I think it's a question of when. As you indicated, I and a number of my colleagues, especially us freshmen, feel very strongly that that needs to happen immediately. And to be honest, that should have happened in the 2020 budget that was just passed. So as you mentioned earlier, we used to have a Department of the Environment, if memory serves, that was done away with under Mayor Emanuel, uh, in part for cost savings reasons. And some of the functions of that department were not absorbed by any other department. I think in particular, uh, real significant coordination about how we're going to effectuate um, the climate change action plan that actually was passed under uh, the second Mayor Daley's administration, I want to say in 2008. Other things that the Department of the Environment were doing, like, um, like inspections uh, regarding public health, those were assumed by our Department of Public Health. But when you're talking about the sort of cross-department mobilization that needs to occur to, to do a number of the things that we've been talking about, I, I see no more important next step in that regard than reestablishing the department to help run point. Is that something that could be included in this resolution, like as a binding part of the resolution that once this passes, the Department of the Environment will be reestablished to in order to oversee this mobilization? So technically, no, because a resolution is essentially a statement of values. It is not something that under the way that we govern in city council um, can direct another entity or individual to do something. We do have, however, uh, an existing, I, I think, either order or ordinance on the books that calls for the reestablishment of such a department. I think if memory serves, George Cardenas, who's the chairman of the Environmental Protection Committee, is the one who introduced that um, uh, last year um, at the start of our term. So that's that's something that is already it's already been introduced and it should be considered soon. That's great. Thanks for the civics lesson. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> we, uh, when we started this podcast, we made it very clear that we are not experts and we're learning alongside our listeners. <laughs> so here's a good example of that. <laughs> All right. So let's switch gears a little bit to talk more about issues that were presented and kind of how you see declaring a climate emergency as helping um, to kind of deal with those issues. Um, one of the big ones that's been in the news a lot in the last few weeks is um, flooding and lakefront erosion because, you know, lake levels are rising. We're getting more, um, more precipitation through all four seasons um, and more varied precipitation. You know, we had heavy rain earlier in the week and now today there's three inches of snow on the ground. So I'm curious what you see as our best options for dealing with particularly lakefront erosion. 
Oh, that's a tricky one with regard to lakefront erosion. I, 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 I believe that it might have been as recently as yesterday, Mayor Lightfoot and Governor Pritzker declared a state of emergency with regard to lakefront erosion, with the idea being that from a procedural standpoint, that could lay the foundation for us receiving uh, funds from the federal government in, in order to rebuild. I think that that's something that depending on where you are um, uh, along the lakefront path, I mean, because we're talking about problems stretching from Rogers Park all the way down to South Shore. Um, so I I don't want to comment too much on like beach to beach or area to area, what would be necessary, but clearly getting some amount of funding in order to rebuild um, in certain situations would be appropriate. I, I think that there's also been discussions around building out, whether it's using a combination of local and state funds or hopefully federal funds, some, I might get the term wrong, but some breakwaters, because part of the problem, as you indicated, isn't just the increased amount of precipitation that we've received, because I think 2019 was either the second or thirdest wetter, second or third wettest year on record in Chicago, but it's also the severity of those storms. So the choppiness of the lake water as it comes and, and hits that shoreline. So those breakwaters could help mitigate uh, at least the destructive power of those waves in the short term. I have read, however, that um, some meteorologists are projecting that 2020 will be uh, a wetter year, or at least the lake levels will continue to rise beyond their 2019 levels. So some of this is an issue where we're talking about um, maybe several decades before we can see a really a real significant um, reduction in those levels. But beyond that, we're talking as best we can about um, stormwater runoff, just managing that so that it's not going into the river and the lake any more so than it is right now. So that's when you're talking about making sure that we have permeable surfaces, especially with new construction, that we're planting and replacing trees so that those root systems can suck in that water, which happens much better than if you just put grass in, for example. And it's also making sure that when it comes to our system of catch basins and, and other things in terms of water management, that those are getting um, fixed or cleaned out on a routine basis so that you don't see the sort of street flooding and other types of flooding that can present challenges. My next question was actually going to be about green infrastructure. So you kind of answered that already. But I'm curious if you have um, read at all about what, what Copenhagen has been doing to reduce flooding um, in their city. They, I think, have similar issues as us where they're, you know, they have water nearby. They've had an increase in rainfall. Um, they've seen more flooding. And they've been building these. I've been telling everyone about this because I think it's so fascinating. They've been building these parks that double as like rainwater basins. So they're built a little bit below grade and they have a ton of native plants with deep roots that can absorb water. And they're designed to literally like turn into mini lakes or like ponds when it rains and then slowly absorb the water. So it's not running off into their sewer system. So it's not running off into their rivers, that kind of thing. I think it's really fascinating and it would be really interesting to see if something like that would be feasible in Chicago. Do you know anything about that? I haven't heard about a proposal that we use a park or, or something as large as a park to do that. I do know that the Green Council that um, my office um, has inherited from my predecessor, Maya Pawar, we had a meeting earlier this week with someone from, gosh, I think one of our museums, maybe the Field Museum, to talk about um, 
ways in which we could do more native plantings along the parkways as well as the bioswells um, along particular street corners. So uh, to, to the extent we're talking about native plants and their root systems being able to um, absorb more, more water um, from like stormwater runoff, that's absolutely on our radar. Okay, so I want to switch gears to talk about transportation. Um, you mentioned earlier that you definitely support increasing infrastructure and access to electric vehicles. And I know you rode the Brown Line mm -hmm. to work this morning. I know you bike with your kids in the area. So you're like on a personal level doing a lot, I think, to kind of change the way transportation works in the city. But Mm -hmm. I, would, I would like to know, um, to kind of co-opt a phrase from Elizabeth Warren, what kind of big structural changes are you hoping to see on the city level um, to make Chicago less car-centric, to increase access to public transit, to increase, you know, rates of people using active transportation, like bikes and scooters, to increase car share rates, and really just decrease the amount of traffic on our streets and the amount of cars on our streets? Well, I, that's something that's so so critical and is very much top of mind for us. One is both in terms of how we use our menu money, but also what we're advocating for on a citywide level is um, expanding our our infrastructure as it, it is as it concerns enhancing safety for pedestrians and bikers. So we're talking about bump outs. We're talking about um, protected bike lanes wherever possible. Um, those can be challenging given the existing infrastructure, those protected bike lanes, but it's something that, that is needed and that we know in other places that um, are even bike friendlier than Chicago is that, that those are those just have to be priorities. I think another thing would be um, expanding our bus fleet as well as making sure that more and more buses are, are powered by electricity as opposed to diesel or, or, or some other fossil fuel. And I recently had a meeting with the new commissioner for transportation, Gia Biaggi, and some of her senior officials to talk about what's in the pipeline there. What can we expect in terms of um, uh, added city resources and comprehensive planning to ensuring that we're giving folks the opportunity to get out of their cars. Because I think uh, the vast majority of Chicagoans commute to work via car, um, but we, we have a really tremendous L system, metro system. Um, we have, along some places anyways, really dynamic bus lines, but we need to make sure that we're putting in the investments, both from a monetary standpoint, but also a planning standpoint, because in certain situations, it might mean you're, you're losing um, a, a lane for cars. But if it's a street like Western, where portions of it have three lanes each way, I think that there's a really strong case to be made that if you do, say, a bus rapid transit lane, um, that people can still in the short term use their cars in a way that they need to from a convenience standpoint, but you're making that sort of down payment on providing the sort of bus infrastructure that we really need to get to where you're talking about, which is a significant reduction in using cars, which at this point, um, they've actually overtaken livestock as being the biggest emitter of CO2 um, in the country. Yeah, it's it's a lot. <laughs> There's a lot of things definitely to consider when I think thinking about transportation in Chicago. Um, 
You mentioned um, supporting protected bike lanes. I know you bike. I also bike. And Chicago kind of talks a mean game about being really bike friendly. But for me personally, it's terrifying to bike on major streets in Chicago. Mm. So I was talking to Andre Vasquez, who's um, alderman of the 40th Ward, which is just a little bit north and east of your ward. Um, And he was Mm -hmm. telling me, you know, he's in Andersonville and I live in Ravenswood. um, So I'm in Andersonville a lot and I bike up Clark Street a lot. And we were talking about um, putting in a protected bike lane there. And he was saying that his his uh, preference is always for, you know, sidewalk, bike lane, parked cars, then traffic. So like a a parking protected bike lane. Um, Would you prefer Mm -hmm. to see parking protected bike lanes like that, which I think are a really easy shift, right? You just shift parking over a little bit and move the bike lane over. Or would you prefer something um, that's more standard in like places in Europe, like Copenhagen and Amsterdam and now Paris, who has a lot of new bike lanes um, that are curb protected, a little bit raised from the street. What kind of infrastructure are you hoping to see in Chicago? So I think we can think about it in terms of timelines. If we're talking about something that can be adopted quickly and maybe with less community opposition, because that's a reality, right? You, we, we have a finite amount of time and political capital, if you will, to fight the fight on issues that are important. So sometimes there can be uh, the unintended consequence of a backlash if um, you're moving at a pace that just isn't sustainable for certain reasons. So I think... Uh, the perfect shouldn't always be the enemy of the good. Let's make sure that we're moving in the right direction. So for streets like Clark, um, it, it may be appropriate to do a more gradual shift whereby you're adopting the approach that Alderman Vasquez had mentioned in terms of you're just shifting things over, which will improve safety, but you're not, for example, taking away parking spots. Um, I know that that can be important for our small businesses, for the chambers of commerce that help organize them. But to the extent we're really talking about maximizing bike safety and maximizing the opportunity for folks to bike more frequently, then I think we've got to be honest in terms of acknowledging that those protected bike lanes in terms of curbs or, or other infrastructure approaches, that that, that is the optimal way um, to protect folks. Because even if you ship things around in the ways that you had just mentioned, that's still... Um, presents issues in terms of folks getting doored. Um, That hasn't happened to me yet, but I'm very, very cognizant that that's a possibility anytime I'm on my bike. And so one of the ways in which like you have enhanced safety with those protected bike lanes is that you literally have some sort of buffer, be it concrete or otherwise, that really minimizes the opportunity for someone to unintentionally door a biker. I know some cities, you know, when we talked earlier about um, increasing green infrastructure, some cities use planters with native plants in them that can absorb rainwater to also protect their bike, which is another pretty, really pretty option. So let's talk about public transit then. I'm curious what your thoughts are on kind of expanding access to the CTA and making it more reliable um, for people, making it more accessible and making it more affordable in order to get people back on the trains and especially back on buses? I think, to be honest, it really starts with what the federal government is going to do. Because while we, for example, in Illinois, recently passed in the General Assembly, signed by Governor Pritzker, a really large capital bill, um, the amount of resources that we're able to bring to bear to create or extend 
uh, a, a transit line, whether it's a circulator or something else, um, when you're talking about reducing fares so that it becomes less and less an impediment for working class individuals and families as well as seniors, that that's, that's federal. That's got to come from the federal government. Even things that are somewhere in between in terms of the red-purple line modernization, um, although we did make a down payment in terms of creating a new TIF along that route, it was really the federal dollars that came out of the Obama administration that made that feasible. So for folks who feel really passionately about improving public transit in the ways that you mentioned, we need to have a new president in office and we need to have a Democratic majority in the Senate for that even to be a conversation. Otherwise, we can continue to talk about this stuff and build momentum, build build support, which I think is critical. But in terms of actually getting to a place where we'll see a circulator that will connect folks in different communities, whether it's like Austin connecting all the way up to Rogers Park um, or doing a real significant fare reduction. That's that to my knowledge, it's not something that we can do unilaterally here in the city. And is there anything else that you any other um, methods for drawing down carbon emissions um, that I haven't mentioned that you're supportive of and you're hoping to see? Well, I, I think we talked earlier about the EV Ready Ordinance that I and Alderman Riley are championing. Um, part of that is predicated on the idea that we'll see an increase in our electric vehicle stock. And so that's something where um, I, I, I'm really hoping to see a more robust use market because for a lot of folks, especially millennials and below, they're not in a position to be able to buy a new electric vehicle, certainly not a Tesla, but there are other options as well that are less expensive. And so having a robust used market will be really critical for that. So I think you're talking about situations where we want to make sure that we're working collaboratively with our state legislators to ensure that um, whether it's incentives like tax breaks, um, that we're really encouraging folks to transition to an EV fleet. You also mentioned Comet and how their contract is up for renewal. Is that correct? In the next, mm -hmm. that's right. Um, I know that there's there are some organizations working on um, organizing to democratize Comet and bring it under city control. Um, are you familiar with that? And what what do you see as the future of energy consumption and use in Chicago? Yeah, I, I think that there are several approaches that we need to be taking and there are different timelines that we're working on. So in the short term, we're in a position where we will be uh, most likely re-upping the ComEd franchise agreement. I don't think that we've been able to lay the foundation for, for adequately understanding and being able to act upon what municipalization would look like. There are a few other places in the U.S. that have undertaken feasibility studies it's my understanding that we'll be seeing a feasibility study here in, the, in some time this spring, which I think will be critical. But our franchise agreement is set to expire at the end of this year. So if you're talking about just the nuts and bolts, if you have the feasibility study, you ask questions about it, then you're looking at financing vehicles, significant bonds, most likely. That's just that's just going to take time to work through those options to identify the sort of risks and to make sure that from a timing standpoint that that that's the right time to do it when we know our city's finances are in such a precarious position. But I think that that's something that needs to remain a fixture of our, our discussion around what we do, because one of the many benefits to 
municipalizing potentially is being able to take profits and not share them with shareholders, but instead reinvest them back into uh, that that municipal department. And so we have a Department of Water Management, for example, um, that's publicly owned and operated. It's not a perfect department by any means, but I think we do have an example of a really critical utility being city owned and operated and it, it being manageable. I think something that we can do in the shorter term would be um, uh, going back to municipal aggregation, which was something that started but then stopped under Mayor Manuel's tenure, which is essentially a system whereby we are, are provide, people can, as a general rule of thumb, get energy um, whereby the city directs uh, or helps direct um, how, how that's sourced. So if you want to make sure that uh, a much larger percentage of the energy that we receive is sourced from renewable sources, municipal aggregation is a way to ensure that that, that happens. So that's something that I'll be um, continuing to talk with the administration to see um, how we can go about adopting that. And then finally, and most immediately, is making sure that to the extent we will uh, re-up the franchise agreement with ComEd, that we have more robust language when it comes to renewable energy. So things like reducing barriers to putting solar panels up on your home or doing like community solar panel um, on some other uh, parcel of property, I think is going to be really critical, as well as um, perhaps just requiring ComEd to make greater investments in terms of the renewable energy infrastructure. If memory serves, the existing franchise agreement, which by the way was approved in 1992, so we need a much shorter franchise agreement going forward. In that old franchise agreement, um, there was a requirement that ComEd spend $25 million, at least 1992 dollars, in terms of investing in um, in renewable energy. I think that we can make similar asks um, and, and more robust asks in um, our upcoming franchise agreement. That's a really long term <laughs> for an agreement. That's a yeah, that's yeah, too long. <laughs> So long. Um, so you touched on this a couple times in our conversation, but how do you propose we fund all these efforts? Well, a lot of the efforts I don't think take significant amounts of funding. It's just having regulations and guidelines in place that really direct individuals and entities to do or not do particular things. That's not to say that some things won't cost a little bit more money, but we have a number of different, more progressive funding sources that we can utilize to bring this stuff to bear. So I think a big short-term opportunity is amending the state's constitution um, to go from a flat income tax to a graduated or a progressive income tax structure like what we have at the federal government. So there will be on the ballot this November um, the opportunity for voters to approve uh, that shift towards more progressive state taxation, which I think is just going to be critical. I think um, down the road, uh, reducing our reliance on property taxes and instead adopting a progressive city income tax will also be critical because right now when you're talking about property taxes and other flat fees and fines in order to fund these things, then you're disproportionately asking people of very modest means to, to fund these these important programs. So I part and then I think finally is just educating folks, letting them know how important this stuff is individually in terms of the policy standpoint, as well as in the aggregate. Because if you get that broad-based buy-in, 
I think people might be willing to chip in just a little bit more, just like I think it, in a, it, to take like a really precise example, um, if we're going to ban single use styrofoam containers in part because they just never really biodegrade. If you had to pay five additional cents for a meal, I, I think that that's something that a good number of folks in and around the Chicago area would be willing to do given the tremendous aggregate effect, the positive effect of that. Right. And I'm very much on team, you know, pay more now in order to not pay more later. You know, the, the preparation and adaptation is really important um, at this stage of the game, because if we don't spend money now on these efforts, it'll be significantly more expensive in the long run. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So you attended the State of the Union earlier this week as Congressman Mike Quigley's guest. um, And you mentioned earlier that the president, you know, is a notorious climate denier. His administration has done some really damaging stuff, including pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, And after that happened, you know, a lot of mayors joined together and were like, all right, we're going to do this without him. We're going to do this without the federal government. Are you seeing cities working together on issues like this, like declaring climate emergencies and kind of banding together and sharing ideas, or is it kind of everyone for themselves? So I definitely have seen in my short time in office, so like with the caveat that I haven't been doing this for decades, I have seen a groundswell of support in other large progressive cities to declare climate emergency, to mandate certain next steps in terms of reporting, cross-agency collaboration. When you start to get to the place where you're being very prescriptive in terms of next steps, that's where it's not clear to me how closely different cities are collaborating with one another. I'm hopeful that that will change. And part of how that changes is just having conversations, doing subject matter hearings in in our our committee, the Environmental Protection Committee, but also reaching out to our colleagues in other places to schedule a quick call to see what's going on there. So I, I think that cross city coordination presents an opportunity for improvement. But if we don't have something like a Department of the Environment or uh, a really robust, active uh, committee for environmental protection at the city council level, it's going to be really challenging for Chicago to, one, learn about that stuff, to say nothing of us participating in it. The 47th Ward has a Green Council that meets monthly in the ward. And I'm curious how the conversations they're having and the work they're doing has um, informed and motivated the work that you're doing at City Hall. It's a very, I'd say, grassroots approach to informing my work. So these are folks um, who, who live in and around the ward who are passionate about these issues, but also in varying ways either have expertise or have time that they're willing to devote to do research. So, for example, the climate emergency resolution that I introduced, the first draft was done by members of our Green Council. We're working on another resolution to hold subject matter hearings around uh, recycling, as you and I discussed earlier. That's something that the Green Council is taking a lead on. We also discussed opportunities to reduce stormwater runoff um, in the ward and throughout the city more broadly. That's something that the Green Council is taking a lead on. So I view organizations like that that are associated with my office as critical because I don't have dozens and dozens of staff who can just spend countless hours reading materials, putting together memoranda. So we we rely on just your average resident to show up to a meeting, to get active, to stay active and help us. Um, and so I think that it's tremendous that there's so many folks who are in a position to be able to assist. And I, I hope that that doesn't change because with 
our last several meetings, we've had upwards of 100 residents attend each one of them. Um, and so the, the sort of work that I'm starting to do with regard to environmental justice just wouldn't be possible without the residents who are getting active with our Green Council. So for people who don't live in the 47th Ward, um, is there a way that they can get involved in these efforts if they don't have a Green Council in their ward? Absolutely. I would suggest that they uh, reach out to their older person's office to see what that older person likes to do um, with regard to environmental justice issues. They may have something that's formal like our council, something that's less formal, meetings that can that that folks can attend. I wouldn't be surprised if some offices might empower that individual or group of individuals to take it upon themselves to organize that the office would support them in doing that. Um, I'd also say that there are a number of really wonderful organizations that do uh, work in this regard at the community level, at the grassroots level. So I, I won't list off all the ones that I'm aware of, but I think a, a quick Google search would let people know what some of those options are. Extinction Rebellion, uh, Center for Neighborhood Technology, obviously some more formal ones like the NRDC, the Illinois Environmental Council, um, Black on Green. So the, we, we really have a number of different options. So if it's not something that's formalized through an older person's office, there are myriad community organizations. So I would encourage any of your listeners to the extent they're having trouble finding uh, information about those groups, they're more than welcome to reach out to my office and, and we're happy to put them in touch with someone. Thanks for listening to Housewarming. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. You can send suggestions for topics to housewarmingpod at gmail.com or reach out to us on Twitter at housewarmingpod. Housewarming Podcast was produced and created by me, Annie Metz, and my good friend, Abby Wilson. I'd like to thank my co-host, Sarah Burry, our sound editor, Alana Martyr-Epstein, and our graphic designer, Reagan Carey, for everything they've done to make this podcast a reality. And thanks to Alderman Matt Martin for sharing his vision with us today. This episode was sponsored by Bike Home Chicago. If you're in the market to buy, sell, or rent a home in Chicago, reach out to Bike Home Chicago with App Properties. Real estate agent Jordan Rothschild would love to bike with you to find your next home. Or if you don't bike, they also offer showings by car. Find them online at bikehomechicago.com or on social media at bikehomechicago. Those links are all in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us in Apple Podcasts or subscribe on Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts to hear the latest episodes when they're released. Find the pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod. And if you like the work we're doing, you can become a supporter on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash housewarmingpod. Thanks for listening.